Our passage for this morning is Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. I encourage you to turn there in your Bible. Again, printed or electronic, use one of those pew Bibles there. You'll find Matthew 28, 16 through 20 on page 1062. Or you'll find it also provided for you there on the front of your bulletin. However it is that you access that passage, I encourage you to have that in front of you as we consider it together this morning. Context matters. We know that. We know that increasingly well in our day and age. In this age of trimmed videos and partial quotes, we know that the context of what is communicated matters in order to convey what has been actually communicated. Context matters in the consideration of this text this morning. When I think about context mattering, I'm reminded of a friend of mine who is now with the Lord, but he had an evangelism strategy. Provocative, to a degree. If he got the sense that someone might be an unbeliever or had questions, he'd go up to them and he'd ask them, did you know the Bible says there is no God? What? The Bible says there is no God? What what are you talking about? Well, the context matters because Psalm 14.1 says, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. Context matters as we approach this text. Context matters because it is the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ who proclaims these words to us. Context matters In our current environment, as Pastor Steve's announcement is on our hearts and our minds, that context matters as we consider these words, this charge that does not change for the people of God. Read with me, Matthew 28, 16-20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As we think about our future transition, I think this text is particularly appropriate for us because its significance for us does not change. Its significance for us as a congregation does not change as long as Pastor Steve is our senior pastor and whoever the Lord has to serve us as our next senior pastor. These words, this charge remains 
the same. And so there is a timeliness for us to consider what the Lord Jesus has commanded and called us to in these verses. So as we reflect on Matthew 28, 16-20, there are four things that I want to draw our attention to. First, I want us to understand the text. I, just, I want to make sure that we're not assuming anything about the text, but I want us to have a basic understanding of what Matthew communicates to us here. I want us to briefly consider the timeliness, the appropriateness of this text for us now. I want us to consider the appropriateness of praying this text. The appropriateness of using this text as a springboard to pray for our congregation. And then I want us to think about how we pray for RBC from this text. So we're going to understand the text, try to understand the text, consider its timeliness, consider the appropriateness of praying the text, and think about how do we pray? How do we use this passage as a springboard for praying for our church family. Well, first, let's understand the text. In order to do this, we're going to jump into the middle of the text and kind of work our way out. This is a passage that is familiar to many of you, but maybe not everyone. And th But there are a few things, regardless of how familiar we are with this passage, there are a few things that we absolutely need to understand about what Matthew writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here. The first thing is the central command. The command of this passage. And particularly the command of Jesus' charge. The command is, make disciples. That is the chief command in this passage. To make disciples. It's the focal point of what Jesus is charging His disciples with here. As He prepares to send them out and leave them, He is giving them a task. And that task is make disciples. Replicate yourselves. D.A. Carson, quoting John Broadus, observes this about Jesus' call to discipleship and to make disciples and what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. To disciple a person to Christ is to bring him into the relation of pupil to teacher, taking his yoke of authoritative instruction. When we become disciples of Jesus, we take on Jesus's yoke of authoritative teaching accepting what He says as true because He says it, and submitting to His requirements as right because He makes them. Disciples are those who hear, understand, and obey Jesus' teaching. And so what Jesus is commanding to His disciples is that they go out and do their part in making those who will hear, understand, and obey His teaching to make disciples. But as Jesus gives them this command, He characterizes it in three ways. In the original, it's three participles. And you get this in the baptizing and the teaching. Those are two of the characteristics. But what is translated in our English translations as a command, go, is a, is a participle. 
in the original. Now, some have taken that to say, well, what Jesus is meaning then is he's saying, as you go, as you're going, as you go about your business, make disciples. But participles in Greek are kind of like WD-40 or duct tape. They got all kinds of uses. And in this place, that participle go or going, it's just like an imperative. Jesus is commanding his disciples to go. And if we have any question that he's not saying, just, you know, as you mill about, as you kind of go about your business, make disciples, what does he say? He says, make disciples where? Everywhere of all the nations. Go to all the nations and make disciples. Therefore, our, our discipleship is to be characterized by a going, by a desire, a pursuit of the ministry of the gospel to all peoples of the earth. But not only is our pursuit of discipleship characterized by going, it's characterized by two other things. It's characterized by baptizing. This is a characteristic of discipleship. David Platt says this about this characteristic of baptism. Baptism is a part of what it means to make disciples because baptism symbolizes identification with the person of Christ and inclusion in the body of Christ. That is, when a person who has come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when they come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the way that they are to first declare to the world, I am a follower of Christ and I identify with Him and I identify with His people is baptism by immersion. That is a picture that declares I am identified with Christ in His death. His death is my death to sin. My, His resurrection is my resurrection. That's what is pictured in baptism so that when a person is baptized into that water and brought up again out of that water, it is a public declaration, I am identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ. And to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ is to identify with His people. So what Jesus is calling His disciples to do is to make disciples and that that discipleship is first marked out by a public declaration of faith in baptism that follows then into a following, a submitting to all that the Lord Jesus Christ has commanded. This, this appeal for baptism, Jesus is using baptism to characterize discipleship or as a characteristic of discipleship cuts in two ways. First of all, perhaps you're here this morning and you have not publicly declared your identification with Christ through baptism. 
we as Baptists, I mean, it's in our name, right? This is, this is central to what we believe Scripture teaches about this issue. Let's talk about that. I, I'd love to, to talk about if you've been hesitant about baptism. Um, you, you say, yeah, I, I'm trusting Christ. I, I'm striving to walk with Him. But you've not pursued believer's baptism. Let, let's talk about that. Contact the church office this week. Pastor Steve would love to talk to you about that and, and what that means for, for you. So it cuts in that direction that all followers of Christ are to be baptized, but it also cuts in the other direction, and that is this. A disciple is not a special class of Christian. All right? To be a disciple is, in part, to be marked out by baptism. So that means that all followers of Christ are disciples. It's not, you've got the followers of Christ and a special subset of that are those who are really committed and those are really the followers of Christ. No, we are all, as those who profess faith in Christ, we are to be followers of Christ. And we do this in imperfect ways. We all have room to grow until the day that the Lord Jesus calls us home or He returns for us. We have room to grow. This is why the other characteristic of discipleship is teach them about everything. Teach them about everything that I've instructed you. And there's no end to our need for this instruction. There is no following Jesus without submitting to His authoritative communication and example. This is never-ending. Remarkably, D.A. Carson goes on to write, remarkably, Jesus does not foresee a time when any part of His teaching will be rightly judged, needless, outmoded, superseded, or untrue. Everything He has commanded must be passed on to the very end of the age. And I would go on to say that not just what we have as the words in red in the four Gospels, but all of the Scriptures as the Word that Christ's Spirit has inspired. This whole book is Christ's Word, Christ's teaching for us. And this should ongoingly, the Word of God should ongoingly be our guide and our instruction to one another as we together go about the process of making disciples and growing as disciples. But notice, not only does Jesus give a command and characterize that command, but He also provides His disciples with the confidence and comfort that they will need to pursue faithfulness. Because notice how the, the, the statement of Jesus begins. He begins by giving them a source of confidence. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There is nothing above the authority of Jesus in all of creation. He rules over it all. So wherever He sends, we will go with confidence knowing that He rules in this place too. There is no one, there is no thing that can 
conquer, that can overcome the authority of Jesus Christ. And so he sends his disciples out in confidence as emissaries of the one who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. But not only does he begin with a statement that engenders confidence, but he concludes his directive with a statement intended to provide comfort. Because the one who has authority over everything, the one who rules over everything, has also promised to be present with his disciples wherever they go to the end of the age. That is, until he returns. And so he sends them out. Go. Replicate yourselves. Your task is characterized in these ways. And as you go, go with confidence that I rule and reign and go in the comfort of knowing that I am with you wherever it is you go, wherever it is you proclaim, however it is they respond, whatever it is they do with you, do to you, I am with you. Go. Think about a commander ordering his soldiers. Central command sends the command to the battlefield. This is what you are to do. What is the soldier's responsibility? It's to obey. What is our responsibility that we have received from our commander? It is to obey. But there is more than just obedience. Raw obedience that goes into responding to this passage because of who the commander is. Because of his identity. This is where we need to see the timeliness of this text. Notice, it's a little shocking when we read verse Verses 16 and 17. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Notice, there are those who respond differently to seeing the resurrected Jesus. Now, there's some question about a couple of aspects of this, this expression of doubt who it is and how it is, what it means that they doubted or they hesitated. Hesitated is probably more accurate to, to how they were responding. We don't need to get into the nuances there, except I will say this. I don't think Matthew intends to convey that the 11 doubted or were hesitant. I think he, when he says some, I think he's saying that there were some others there and they just weren't sure how to respond to what they were seeing. The eleven worshipped. There were probably others that worshipped with them. There were some who weren't quite sure how to respond. But what I want us to notice here is the difference in the responses of those present. And this is where that applies to us and the timeliness of, of this text. It's not in their responses themselves, but again, those distinctions. And what I mean by timeliness is this. When... Pastor Steve shared about his upcoming retirement. Different people respond in different ways to big news like that. 
And I'm sure that's a reality for our congregation. That news lands differently on different ears for different reasons. It's been said that when a pastor announces that he is moving on, there are some who are sad. There are some who are mad. I don't, I don't know what that's like for each and every one of you, but what I do know is like what happened here with Jesus, I'm sure there are differences in our response, but even in those different responses, what I want to appeal for all of us is that we all respond by loving and praying on Pastor Steve and Chris. Loving them as we have opportunity over these these next couple of months especially. Praying for them and their transition. And also praying for our congregation. And praying in accord with what we see here. But this passage is also timely because the authority, the rule of Jesus never changes. It is the Lord Jesus who is the head of His church. It is the Lord Jesus who gave His life for His church. It is the Lord Jesus who said, I will build My church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It is the Lord Jesus who is our ultimate authority, our ultimate chief that does not change with whoever is standing behind this pulpit. And so His charge to us here, the charge of our head does not change as we move forward. This charge is our charge. But I want us to also think about praying this text. Maybe, maybe you've thought about that before. Maybe you've used the, the Great Commission to motivate, to guide your praying for missions. You're praying for our church, perhaps. But maybe you haven't. And, and I want us to think about that a little bit. Why should we pray this text? I've been greatly helped in thinking through this idea by John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad, and specifically chapter 2, where he talks about praying for missions. You can get that book freely, I'm sure, at desiringgod.com. I encourage you to, to get that book, and if you don't read anything else in it, read chapter 2 on praying for, for missions. So, so helpful what he says here. But some of you, some of us might think, well, wait a second. This is a command. Why should we pray? We've been given a command. Let's go do it. Let's go back to that image of the commander who gives his orders to his soldiers. He expects them to obey. But we are in a slightly different position. Yes, we are to obey, but we have a chief. We have a commander who can and who does supply help in a way that no human commander could ever help those under his charge. Another way to think about this as we pray, think about praying this command is this. Some might say, well, well, why would God want us to pray? Doesn't He want us to just obey? God is not like the annoyed teacher who receives a question and says, I just answered that. I, I just told you. I just explained that to you. That's not what God is like. 
The Lord Jesus says, ask, seek, knock, and it will be given to you. God wants us to come to Him and ask ask Him for His help. In this way, in our asking and in His supplying, He is shown to be the great provider. But I think there's more reasons why we should pray this passage for our church. One is the necessity of God's power. Think about the immensity of what Jesus is commanding His disciples to do here. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them everything I've commanded you. That is, go to those who are my enemies and make them my followers. It is only the power of God that can do that. It is only by the strength that God supplies that His Word will have its intended effect in the conversion and transformation of followers of Jesus. We need God's power. Remember what Jesus told His disciples in John 15, apart from Me, you can do nothing. Apart from the help that Jesus supplies, we can do nothing to pursue faithfulness, to pursue true and lasting obedience to this commission. But more than that, Scripture makes plain that there is a place for prayer in ministry and missions. Think about a place for prayer in ministry and missions. Think about that passage that we read earlier, Psalm 67. It's a prayer of thanksgiving to God and a prayer that God would bless the nations as He blesses His people. When Jesus taught His disciples to pray in Matthew 6, how did that prayer begin? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. What does it look like for the kingdom to come? The kingdom comes in individual lives. The saving reign of God comes into lives as people come and identify with Christ and follow Him with their lives as the Great Commission is fulfilled. So in a sense, Jesus is in part telling us to pray that God's saving reign will come, to pray for God's help in realizing this command that He has given to see disciples made. Moreover, we should pray this prayer because of how the Scriptures link the Bible and prayer in ministry and missions. I want to read again from or I want to read from John Piper and that book that I referenced, Let the Nations Be Glad, on this link between the scriptures and prayer to accomplish the mission of God. God has made the accomplishment of his purposes hang on the preaching of the Word. But He has also made the success of that preaching hang on prayer. 
God's goal to be glorified will not succeed without the powerful proclamation of the gospel. And that gospel will not be proclaimed in power to all the nations without the prevailing, earnest, faith-filled prayers of God's people. This explains Paul's repeated call for prayer in support of the Word. Listen to these Scripture references and hear the link between praying and the ministry of God's Word. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the Word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. 2 Thessalonians 3. Pray also for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Ephesians 6. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. Colossians 4. Prayer is, now John Piper continues, prayer is the walkie-talkie of the church on the battlefield of the world in the service of the Word. It is not a domestic intercom to increase the temporal comforts of the saints. It malfunctions in the hands of soldiers who have gone AWOL. It is for those on active duty. And in their hands, it proves the supremacy of God in the pursuit of the nations. When missions moves forward by prayer, it magnifies the power of God. God has intended that our ministry of the Scripture would move forward empowered by the prayers of God's people pleading for His help in opportunities, in the success of the preaching, the teaching, the private one-on-one conversations of His Word. If we would, as a congregation, continue to strive after faithfulness, let's pray for God's help to be faithful to this task. Let's use this charge that God has given to us through the Lord Jesus Christ to guide our praying for one another to guide our praying for our church. The Scriptures tell us that if we pray God's will, we know that He hears us. 1 John. When we take up these words that God has given to us, what are we doing? We are praying in accordance with His will because this is what He wants for us. This is what He intends of us. So let us use these words to guide our praying. So how do we do that? How do we pray from the Great Commission? You have in your bulletin this morning a green handout. And if you're watching on the live stream, And for those of you who are here and prefer an electronic copy, this will be posted along with the sermon on the sermon post. And it will will also be available from the church office uh, this week. So feel free to contact us and we will get that to you.
I'm not going to take the time to read through this, this passage or to read through this, this handout. Uh, that's for you. You can, you can read through it on your own. But I do want to read a few of these just to give us an idea of how it is that we can be praying for our church in keeping with the Great Commission. Now, let me say this. As you read through these and think about these and look up the Scripture references that are connected with them, I am not by these implying that these are not happening at our church or anything about that. Rather, what I'm saying is this is how we need to pray in the direction of this first because we always have room to grow in these areas. Okay? So this is an appeal for us to look forward and pray that God would help us as we continue to strive after faithfulness in this great commission. But what are the kinds of things that we can pray for? Notice there under pray that we submit to Jesus' authority, pray that we consistently and confidently rest in Jesus' rule over every corner and detail of all all creation. Pray that we joyously fix our gaze on Jesus as the head of His body, the church, the universal and local church. And then there are, there are things that you can pray in conjunction with making disciples. Pray that we go to the nations. Pray that we baptize disciples. Pray that we teach disciples. Pray that we regularly rely on Jesus' presence. Notice two things there. Pray that we are comforted by and satisfied with Jesus' unchanging presence with us in every season of life and ministry. And then there at the bottom, as we trust in the promise of Jesus' presence with us, pray that we labor in the joy of, of one day seeing Jesus face to face. And there are many others that, there that you can use. And these just scratch the surface. This is by no means an exhaustive list. There are other ways that you will think of to pray for our church family that we might be faithful to this task that we have been given. And as you think of others, send those to me. I would love to hear how it is that you think we can and we should be praying in keeping with this great commission. And there are a variety of ways that you can use this list. You could take a section each day and just pray through that section. You could take one of those bullets and just pray through that bullet. Look up the Scripture references that are there and use those to prompt other ways to pray for our church family. And there are other ways that you can incorporate this into your daily praying for our church. But as we pursue praying for our church, there are two warnings that we need to heed. One comes from Chuck Lawless, a professor at Southeastern Seminary. Lawless has said multiple places, multiple times, a warning about hearing sermons on prayer, going to a seminar about prayer, studying prayer in your own Bible study and Sunday school. We should do all those things. He's not opposed to those. We should learn about praying. But the danger in learning about praying is that we think when we're done learning, we've accomplished something because we know prayer better. Learning about prayer doesn't help if we don't then actually pray. So let's go from this place and let's pray. Let's pray together for our church family. 
But a second warning comes from Piper again in that same chapter. He writes this, It is almost impossible to overemphasize the awesome place of prayer in the purposes of God for the world. But a caution is needed here. I sense the danger of overstating the role of prayer in relation to the Word of God and the preaching of the Gospel. I am not comfortable, for example, with calling prayer the work of missions. Let me read that again. I am not comfortable, and I think he's right here, I am not comfortable with calling prayer the work of missions. We will not jeopardize its awesome indispensability if we deny this claim. I do not deny it because of any desire to minimize the place of prayer, but out of a zeal for the place of the Word of God in world missions. So let me say loud and clear that I believe the proclamation of the Gospel in word and deed is the work of missions. Prayer is the power that wields the weapon of the Word of of the Word, and the Word is the weapon by which the nations will be brought to faith and obedience. The work, the charge that we have is to faithfully minister the Word of God. But as we do that together, and as our church continues to do that together, let us do it together empowered by praying for one another and praying for the ministry of the Word of God in us and through us in this community and around the world. So, my appeal, my plea to you, Will you join me in praying for our church to grow in faithfulness? Whether you use this green sheet or not, will you pray for our church to be faithful, to grow in faithfulness to the charge of making disciples? Sometimes, we treat prayer as the last resort, right? Well, if I can't do anything else for you, then I can pray for you. But if I can do anything else for you, I'm going to do that thing instead of praying for you. We get that order reversed in any and every circumstance. Prayer should be the first thing that we do. And as we have opportunity to tangibly serve one another and speak the Word and minister the Word, then we should also do those things. But it should always be accompanied by asking for God's help to empower us and to be glorified as we minister in the name of Jesus. Moreover, and lastly, we've all been gifted in different ways and have different opportunities to serve in our church in different ways. Sometimes health, life stage impacts how it is that we can serve our church. But you know what? It strikes me that regardless of our situation in life, regardless of our energy or lack thereof, regardless of whether we're able to be here in this place or not, 
we can all pray. This is the one thing that we can all do together. So let's do it. Let's pray that God would make us increasingly faithful to the task that He has given us to make disciples here and abroad. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the gift of Jesus. Thank You for the gift of His death and resurrection in the place of sinners like us. Father, I pray for anyone within the hearing of my voice who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Father, I pray that today that they would flee to Him, that they would recognize their sin, recognize that they are accountable to You, that we are all accountable to You on our own left to ourselves because of our sin. But Father, help them to see that You have provided a great and glorious Savior who has paid the penalty for sinners like us. Father, I pray that they would come to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and begin this journey of following after the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for Pastor Steve and for Chris. Again, Father, I thank You for their faithful ministry and we look forward, Father, to their continued ministry to us. So Father, as they prepare to transition, we pray that You would help them in their new place of opportunities there in Louisville. Help them to remain faithful to the task of making disciples. Of having opportunities to proclaim the, the truth of the Savior to have opportunities to help others grow in faithfulness. We pray that You would surround them with fellow believers to help them in their walks and help them grow. Father, we pray for our church family. God, You know what the days ahead have in store for us. Well, Father, we know that whatever those days look like, the one thing that does not change is Jesus' reign over us. Help us to rejoice in that. Father, in our sin, we chafe against that. Help us, Father, to rejoice in the goodness of King Jesus' reign over us. Help us, Father, to have confidence in His reign and in that confidence to pursue faithfulness. Help us, Father, to be those who are faithful in lifting up our congregation, in lifting up one another, pleading for Your help to be about the business of making disciples. Father, I pray that You would help us to grow in making disciples. Help us to grow in our evangelistic witness. Help us to grow in cultivating Christ-likeness, faithfulness to all that Jesus has commanded us in His Word. Father, use our praying, use our giving, use our going to make disciples to the ends of the earth. Father, we pray that You would help us to rest in the promise of the presence of Jesus by His Spirit until that day when He returns 
And we are with Him face to face for all eternity. Until that day, Father, empower us, increase our faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.